Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Chodosh. I'm Kendra Pierre-Lewis. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It is a very special day, uh, Weirdest Thing listeners, because in addition to uh, having one of our favorite PopSci alums, Kendra, on, we are back for season four. We have... Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was looking for. But yeah, we, we really missed you all, and we will be back fortnightly for the foreseeable future. We have some really fun, timely bonus episodes planned. So thanks so much for sticking with us and coming back. And we're really psyched to get season four rolling. As I said, Kendra is one of our favorite former PopSci staffers, but she's also a reporter for the show How to Save a Planet, uh, which is brand new and which we're really excited for Weirdest Thing listeners to check out. Kendra, would you like to say a little bit about the show? Sure. Um, it's a brand new podcast that's really focused on climate change solutions. I call it sort of like climate change meets schoolhouse rock. Mm -hmm. um, it's really designed to help people kind of figure out what they can do on sort of a big picture scale to help fight climate change. It's less about sort of individual actions. So we're not telling anyone to stop using straws and more sort of like, what can you do on a community scale or what can you do in your community to help move the needle on climate change? Awesome. That is exactly the kind of thing we need. So we're really excited to check it out. And I know that uh, Weirdest Thing listeners will enjoy it as well. So folks, you can uh, get that wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, we're going to get into the show. 
So on the Weirdest Thing I Learned this week, we start by each offering up a little fact or tease about some kind of story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, really, really, really missing our Weirdest Thing listeners, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, would you like to start with your tease? I will be talking today about the spiders that caused a mass recall of tens of thousands and possibly hundreds of thousands of cars. Car spiders. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Car spiders. Just what we needed, I know. Spiders in cars. Excellent. Kendra, what's your tease? Mine, I guess, is sort of speaking to this present moment, which is that xenophobia caused the death of thousands of people. Weirdest thing. Always up for some depressing but important facts about xenophobia and i'm i'm always happy to deliver (laughs) (laughs) gloom and doom is your beat with a smile (laughs) (laughs) so my tease is that i would like to talk about ribbons bras and n95 masks uh wow yeah what a combo truly a combo so what do we want to start with I think I need to hear about car spiders because I don't need any more like sense of impending doom in my life. And I I would like to know how concerned I should be about spiders, cars, and the intersection (laughs) thereof immediately. I I am also on team car spiders, mostly because I want to know how how do car spiders rank next to car rats? You know, because early in quarantine, there were all of these occurrences of people finding rats nesting in their vehicles because Mm. they weren't driving them and i'm just wondering in the hierarchy of car (laughs) pestilence if you will what you should be more worried about that's the 2021 disney film we can all look forward to cars and rats and spiders (laughs) oh boy uh well the good news is that i can assuage all your fears because well you know what no i'm gonna take that back i can assuage some of your fears so, okay, so we're going to go back in time just a little bit. Uh, and just for uh, just for those people who are not car people, which I am not a car person, though I did recently purchase a car for the first time, we're talking today about the Mazda 6, which is apparently quite a popular car that has been around since, like, roughly 2002, I believe. It's a pretty standard, I would even call it a boring sedan, but... The 2009 and 2010 models had a very unusual problem, which is that spiders loved them. Specifically, <laughs> specifically, it seemed to be the yellow sack spider, which is, um, it, I thought it sounded large and terrifying, I think based just on the word sack, but it's actually a little tiny spider, like just a few millimeters, and it builds these very dense webs. And in March of 2011, Mazda had to recall... 52,000 Mazda 6s because these little spiders were building webs inside one of the vent lines that came out of the gas tank. The webs were apparently so dense that the the fumes coming out of it got blocked up and the pressure would build inside the gas tank, which is not a good thing. And it would cause like either the fuel line or the gas tank itself to crack, which is not a great thing when you have a flammable liquid in large quantities. Um, who was the poor person who figured this out? Um, there, there were a few people that this happened to, <laughs> unfortunately. 
Uh, I mean, I don't think, I think it was probably the mechanics who discovered the spiders because people just came in because they had like leaking gas. There, It was a fire risk, obviously, because you just have like loose gas. Um, but there weren't actually any records of, of car fires caused by spiders, which is some relief, That's I think. That's good. That means we can laugh about the car spiders. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, no, nobody died from the car spiders. They were just a little bit freaked out, maybe. So Mazda figured out the problem and they decided, well, they could fix the car's by basically retrofitting them with a little spring-loaded mechanism to keep the spiders out. So they recalled all the cars and they retrofitted them. And then on all their new models going forward, they also added like a piece of software that I'm not going to claim to fully understand it. But somehow the software changed. I don't understand cars. Cars are basically just big computers now. They are. Three years later, though, in 2014. Wait, wait I have a question. Go, Jess. Was it a Spidey Sense software? <laughs> 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 It was. Okay, incredible. Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in 2014, Mazda unfortunately had to recall like most of the same cars because apparently the spring alone could not keep the spiders out. (laughs) The spiders came back. It had to update all of the software as well. Apparently the software is like more effective than just the springs. So they did manage to fix those people's cars. But the real mystery was, of course... Why? Why were there spiders in people's fuel vent lines? (laughs) Apparently, according to like every single news article I could find about this, it's that yellow sack spiders just love the smell of gasoline. Some people like the smell of gasoline. I am not a a huge fan, but apparently the spiders just really love it. I heard the story in a YouTube video that was about like car manufacturer fails, and I thought it seemed crazy and so i googled it because it seemed like i mean it seems like an urban legend like yeah exactly i just thought this is it it was like a good video but i just thought they've got it wrong like they definitely have it wrong there's no way well your problem here is that it's full of spiders exactly so i actually found an old pop article wildly that like seemed to confirm the story it was basically saying like yes people found spiders in their fuel vent lines and that is actually what caused the tanks to crack but i just kept thinking like why why would a spider be attracted to gasoline like in nature what would be the purpose of that Mm -hmm. that just seems crazy to me so the pop article talked about something that's called cuticular hydrocarbons which are basically i did not know what these were but as the name implies they are hydrocarbons inside the cuticles of insects Insects all like have exoskeletons and in their the outermost layer is called the cuticle and that's mostly made of chitin, but there's also this waxy outer layer that keeps the cuticle from getting dried out. Mm-hmm. And the more we learn about this, the more it seems that there's actually a lot going on in that outer layer, namely that it has a bunch of hydrocarbons that seem to be signaling molecules to other insects. Ah. So spiders seem to like, at least some of them, seem to be able to discriminate between their own kin and also and other spiders by sensing these hydrocarbons. And ants apparently do a similar thing. And apparently some spiders actually mimic like ants' hydrocarbons to trick the ants into coming towards them and then they eat the ants. I, that does sound familiar. I believe I have, yeah. I have seen research on this. As someone yeah. who has been dealing with an ant infestation all summer, I am on the side of the spiders. 
I'm just putting that out there. Eat the ants. Eat out the ants. That's fair. I mean, I don't like spiders near me, I will admit, but they are unquestionably good for our planet. They are they are wonderful creatures. I just don't want to see them. <laughs> so like that that kind of seemed to answer the question for me. I was like, yeah, so okay, they're not attracted to gasoline per se. Like there's just some hydrocarbon in the gasoline and that must happen to smell like other spiders maybe. Maybe it's just a very comforting scent for them. I don't really know. But there was one line in this Popsi story that I could not ignore, which is that the writer interviewed an entomologist and it said, entomologist Chris Buttle says they should be called, quote, ceiling spiders because they can be found on the ceilings of practically any house. So it shouldn't be surprising that they're in cars or automobile factories. They're kind of everywhere. I was like, well, hang on. If they're (laughs) everywhere... Maybe, like, is this just all a big coincidence? Like, Mazda just got really unlucky. So I tried to do more research because, like, at, like literally every news article says it's definitely the spiders because the spiders just love gasoline. Unquestioned, definitely they just love gasoline. I found a single paper. It wasn't even a full paper. It was, like, an abstract that was presented at an Indiana University, like, research day. Mm-hmm. And it's entitled, Testing an Urban Myth. Do spiders really love the smell of gasoline? Apparently, the answer is no. <laughs> Yellow sack spiders were like were not particularly attracted to gasoline odors. They did a sort of very simple experiment where they got a bunch of mostly juvenile spiders, but also some adult spiders, and they would give them, you know, two sides basically of a little enclosure, one that had a gas smell and one that didn't. And they didn't seem to prefer the area that had a gas smell, but what they were attracted to was pieces of tubing. Ah. <laughs> It's a series of tubes. It's always it the answer. Is. Yeah. So it seems like maybe it's the it's the pipes themselves. So like I went back and again in this old Popsi article, it says there were only like 10 cases of car spiders that prompted this mm. Mazda 6 recall. I guess that's enough for them to issue the recall. I mean, so, it, it did crack a gas line. So <laughs> yeah, I, I'm guessing it's that it was just a serious enough issue that even a small number of cases was like well sure. we can't have people with cracked gas tanks we must recall them and it, it could also just be that like other people have spiders in cars but they're just in annoying ways and there was something about the design of mazda's gas line in particular that made it so when the spiders were attracted to that particular tubing they it was kind of catastrophic yeah so that seemed to be it one thing that i did find is that mazda sixes have two pipes coming out of their fuel tank which is apparently unusual again i know nothing about cars but apparently that is unusual i couldn't find anything that was like like they did some kind of redesign in 2009 and i couldn't figure out did it have that design before or did they change it for this 2009 redesign and that was what caused it i don't really know but the pipes thing does kind of seem to hold up because toyota had a recall for 870,000 cars in 2013, which because was because the spiders, not necessarily yellow sack spiders, it doesn't, I guess Toyota didn't really get into the species of spider, <laughs> but just some kind of spider. These spiders were building webs inside of the drainage tube that came out of the air conditioning system, and they blocked the condensation, and so water would build up in the Ooh. tube, and then it would drip down onto the control board, which Ooh. caused it to short circuit. Most of the time, it just turned the airbag warning light on accidentally. But in a handful of cases, the airbag would just deploy randomly, which is extremely dangerous. And there really shouldn't be gas fumes in the AC system, like more so than there is in any other part of like your garage. Right. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe just spiders like tubes. (laughs) Maybe they just enjoy that environment. And like exactly like Kendra said, like there's spiders in your car. 
probably. You just don't know that they're there. Yeah. So wow. car spiders. I don't know if that's any relief. You maybe don't need to worry about them, but they are there almost <laughs> unquestionably. <laughs> so sorry about that. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Okay, and we're back. And Kendra, how about you tee us up with a big societal downer, please? Uh, you know, that's kind of my other middle name is Big Societal Downer. <laughs> it's very your brand. Kendra. You know, it's my stage name. Um, <laughs> when, when I feel like gloom is her beat isn't um, quite dark enough. So I want to take you back, way back, a long, long time ago when I could still remember. No, um, I want to take you back to 1900. And the scene is Galveston, Texas, which um, I don't know what you know about Galveston, Texas, but it's an island on the Gulf of Mexico. And at the time, it was the fourth largest city in Texas. It had 38,000 people, but still it's an island sort of dangling in the Gulf of Mexico. So it was, you know, a hurricane risk. And this is 1900. And there weren't any satellite observations, you know, Oftentimes we're told weather forecasting was pretty rudimentary. Mm -hmm. And so there was this massive hurricane that struck the island on September 8th, and it killed over 10,000 people. So like, or at least those are the official estimates. So a quarter of the population. And when you look at photos from Galveston, which like beforehand, it was like this beautiful sort of stereotype of a 1900 city, you know, like these Mm. beautiful structures. And then afterwards, it just decimated. Almost no buildings are standing. A lot of the structures were wooden. And so it's like sticks, like matchsticks almost, only building-wise. And there were people, their bodies, like you're seeing bodies in between like the wood. And the official narrative was sort of like, weather forecasting was terrible. They didn't see the storm coming. Oops. However... And I learned about this by reading Al Roker. Yes, that Al Roker's book, Storm of the Century. And it's just like there's a chapter in there. And to know why so many people died, you have to look not to Texas, but to Cuba. And in Cuba, there was a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Benito Vienes, I think. And he was a weather nerd. Uh, If podcasts had existed (laughs) in 1900, he definitely would have had a weather podcast. He spent all of his time filling these storm notebooks with descriptions of clouds, and he cross-referenced those cloud formations with instrument readings that he was taking at the time. And like when ship captains would dock in Havana, he would like ask them about the weather that they had seen when they were at sea, and he would like collect all of these newspaper clippings and telegraph reports. And he ended up becoming this like weather genius, Mm. specifically at cloud formations and how they relate to hurricanes. And so on September 3rd, I believe, our saintly father, if you will, (laughs) was staring at these clouds. And he was able to deduce two kind of salient things that there was a hurricane coming and where it was heading. And he could even tell that it was a big one. And so he had this whole model and he could tell that a hurricane had formed and calculate how roughly how far away it was and gauge how fast it was moving and even track its path. These are all things that we do in 2020 using satellites, right? Right. This man did it, like, because he could read the clouds. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you're wonder- You're probably wondering why I was wondering, well, why didn't he warn the Texans? But why? 
just thought I'd help you out there a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Because the U.S. Weather Bureau Director, Willis Moore, that's like the forerunner of the National Weather Service, hated Cubans. He thought that they were backwards. He felt that you couldn't predict weather forecasting. And he thought that they were backwards and rudimentary and like rustic. And so the way and that like their weather forecasts were wrong and they were panicking populations. And so he essentially banned all weather forecasting out of Cuba. Wow. Uh, So he couldn't. That's great. (laughs) So he couldn't. He tried. He couldn't tell anyone like what he was seeing. And then Father Viano tried like using Western Union to send telegraphs to like tell people like weather forecasts. And they couldn't stop Western Union because it was a private entity from sending these telegraphs. But what they could do was incentivize them to send these weather forecasts like the lowest tier. So none of the telegrams got out. Oh, no. Oh, this feels upsettingly parallel to some current situations we are running into with I have sending information. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is fine. And he was convinced that the forecasts were the superstitious lore of backward people that he believed lacked Yankee grit and know-how. And so because oh, of that. God. <laughs> oh, God. The last Yankee thing grit. we need is more Yankee grit and know-how. Oh. Um. <laughs> And so, like, there's this narrative, and actually, if you, like, pull up the Texas history, like, website, like, loving Texas history, the the official kind of narrative is that, like, nobody saw this hurricane coming. It sucked. We've learned so much about hurricanes because of Galveston. When even in 1900, it was preventable, and that does not at all sound like a situation we are currently living through. No, what are you talking about, Kendra? (laughs) And then when it all went down, he just, like, lied and eradicated the history and was like, no, it never happened. And so it took, like, way later for people to put the pieces together and recognize that, like, all of these people died needlessly. So that is, I don't know if it's my weirdest thing. It's certainly my darkest thing. But anyway, you can do hurricane forecasting by reading clouds. So that's a cool takeaway. Yeah. Well, and I'm, like, really curious about when did U.S. forecasting realize clouds were important like i didn't realize in 1900 we were still like none of that cloud witchcraft (laughs) yeah i was gonna ask like when did we when did we name cloud types and were we naming them based on actual information or was it just people who were like this cloud shape is this thing i don't know what it means but we're gonna call it that that is a very excellent question that i am incapable of answering because i (laughs) was too busy being filled with rage at the racism Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, um, I read this amazing book whose name I'm going to completely blank on, but I will post when we put this podcast episode up, but was basically about the Polynesian navigators who, Mm -hmm. yeah, who managed to find basically every single island in the Pacific and inhabit it to some degree at some point, and how when the Europeans came along and discovered the islands that they basically were completely flummoxed as to how the Polynesians were able to navigate through the waters and they even tried to get some of the like most expert navigators to teach the European captains like how how did they do it Mm -hmm. but the Europeans just seemed to have like given up like it was just kind of too hard and they were like well we'll just keep using our maps that don't really seem to be working that well and (laughs) that cause us to just sail right by islands that we didn't know were there Clouds in general are amazing. Like the things you can tell from just knowing what different cloud types are 
It was incredible. Yeah. And it was also like, in this case, like, because of the relationship with the Catholic Church in Cuba, like, a lot of the weather center was all sort of based around this observatory that Father Vignes kind of created in 1858. But another father, Father Gonquat, I don't know how to say, everything I say that's not in English, I say with a weird French accent. So I'm sorry <laughs> for people who speak Spanish. I'm really sorry. Um, but he observed a big halo around the moon and the halo didn't dissipate. And then at dawn, the sky turned a deep red and there were cirrus clouds and they were moving from the west by north and northwest by north with the focus on those same points. And to him, that meant that the storm had gained in intensity, had gained in structure, it had prevailing winds and it was pushing northwest. And he, from like the model that Father Vinius had created, he thought he could tell exactly where the storm was going to be and it was going to be the Texas Gulf Coast. So they knew, like it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and and to understand sort of what played out in Galveston, like they did not know a storm was coming. So there's often like the ocean behaves kind of strangely before a hurricane makes landfall. So people actually flooded to the beach to be like, because the water had kind of receded. Mm. So when the storm, oh, wow. yeah. So when the storm came in, people were physically running from the waves because the water is the deadliest part of the hurricane. And there are all of these accounts of people like, the people who managed to survive often survived because they made it to the top floor of these structures that like were barely intact. There are stories of people like making it to the top floor of these structures and then waiting until the last possible second as the structure was collapsing to jump out of a window before wow. the structure collapsed so they wouldn't get trapped in the rubble. So wow. when I say they had no notice, I mean, they literally had no notice. That is wild. They, there was like some vague like tropical storm warning but it's you know like when we get a tropical storm warning in new york city what that means you know like we just yeah. had one a couple weeks ago it was like that it was like oh this is annoying it might be kind of rainy right, like it wasn't right. that level of like oh you might die and everyone right. you love might die man the importance of international collaboration cannot be overstated and and yeah and just sort of recognizing i don't know that other people can know things yeah <laughs> what they can? Uh, and I mean, I, I've been teasing with it, but it was really painful, like, revisiting this, I think. I think I read this before the pandemic, but it was really painful revisiting it, like, in preparation mm. for this, because you could look at Taiwan, you could look at South Korea, you could look at Hong Kong, you could look at New Zealand. There are all of these countries that chose different options than we did with dealing with covid and so often people would say, oh, we're, we're not China or we're not these, mm. these other countries. And it's like, well, we could be. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's We had the option. <laughs> yeah. So there's one more thing that I want to point out to you, which is the head of the Weather Service, uh, Willis Moore, who had blocked the forecast. He was eventually fired from the Weather Bureau, but not because of this, but because he was trying to secure a cabinet post and he had somehow done some sort of improper conduct in his campaign. So eventually there was some justice coming to this shady dude, but mm. unfortunately it wasn't through the form of professional consequences for helping to facilitate the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back and uh, it is time for my fact. So I'm curious, have either of you guys ever heard a story about the N95 mask in relation to brassieres? Uh, no. I actually have, but that's because I'm supremely online. 
(laughs) (laughs) I am not online enough. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to get into it. Some people have uh, rightfully pointed out that N95 masks, which are those cup-shaped filtering masks that uh, fit really closely to your, your face, they look quite a lot like a bra cup. And I had been aware there was some connection, but as is so often the case, stories about design and engineering and science and especially women involved in them, it was kind of oversimplified to the point of implying that like they were looking for a mask shape and a woman was like, you know what would do great? A bra cup. And... The actual story is uh, way better than that and introduced me to a woman who may be the love of my life, even though she unfortunately passed away about five years ago. I still think maybe we're meant to be together. So let's get into it. Sarah Little Turnbull uh, was born in Manhattan in 1917 to a pair of very poor Jewish immigrants from Russia. Uh, She was actually born Sarah Finkelstein, and uh, she earned a scholarship to Parsons School of Design And after that, she started working at House Beautiful Magazine, and that was in 1937. And she eventually became their decorating editor, and she held that job for two decades. And even at this point in her career, she's credited with no small amount of influence on post-war American culture. Uh, To name one example, she encouraged the kind of shared casual living space that would become known as the family room, which was really not a widely discussed concept until like the 40s when there started to be more of a focus on like family leisure and bonding and recreation in the home and things like that. And she also like encouraged young women entering the workforce to get roommates. I hadn't really thought about it, but like it's true then that when not many women like went to college and then worked, there wasn't really a concept of young ladies moving in together uh, unless they were like spinsters slash lesbians. Um, and things like that. She was just kind of a, a a thinkfluencer of her day. Meanwhile, she started to do some design consulting work to pay her sister's medical bills. Her sister was, was very sick at the time. And she says that when she made up her fee, because she didn't know what to charge, she just did it by adding together all of the recent healthcare expenses. And she was shocked when clients agreed to pay it. So she kind of accidentally managed to not shortchange herself in the way that most women in the design world were being shortchanged. But her real impact started in the late 50s, which is when she set off on her own to be a design consultant full-time. And by the way, that's where the name Sarah Little comes in. She's known as Sarah Little Turnbull. So she was four foot 11, uh, and people frequently <laughs> called her Little Sarah. And, you know, people seem to to have widely accepted that she just, like, took this in stride, but uh, I have to say that her changing her name to Sarah Little seems to me like she just wanted people to shut the f*** up about her height. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say it before they did. But yeah, her professional name was uh, Sarah Little, and uh, it was also very apt because her consulting career really got launched when she wrote this article called Forgetting the Little Women or something to that effect, which was about focusing on designing products with the consumer in mind in a way that we kind of take for granted today. I mean, not all companies do it as well as others, but you assume that a product is getting made so that people can use it. But at the time, most companies were designing 
just what the major retail buyers said they wanted. So it was very much focused on aesthetics and like fitting the status quo. And she was saying like, you know, you have to think about the women who will be using appliances in the kitchens and things like that. And that was like very radical at the time. And so it got her a lot of attention. That brings us to the N95 mask, or at least it almost does. So uh, 3M, which is like a huge conglomerate, tons of material science. 3M was one of several companies that found Sarah's spin on human-centric design really refreshing. Uh, So they hired her as a consultant. But as it was the mid-20th century and Sarah was a diminutive Jewish woman, they put her in a questionable division, gift wrap and fabric. 3M had developed some new non-woven materials that they were hoping would improve their electrical tape, but that had failed. And so then the material had been relegated to use in decorative ribbons. So Sarah's first move was to design the first pre-made gift bows, you know, those like magic bows that like you peel the backing off or you'd like pull a tab and it forms a bow. She came up with that. She also made it clear to 3M that she had dozens of more innovative ideas for this material, which, again, they had really just like punted over to ribbon material when it hadn't worked out the way they wanted it to. So that led to her giving a famous presentation to management that was entitled just why, and the point being, you know, why they should be investing more research into product designs for their non-woven fabric business. Um, And she presented at least 100 product concepts at that meeting, which is just mind-blowing to me. She was basically saying, here's this material that you have me making gift wrap out of, and here are 100 more lucrative things I could be doing with it. And predictably, given the fact that they had put her on gift wrap duty to begin with, the product they went for out of those 100 products was a bra. The idea was that the non-woven fabric would help it like keep a fixed shape in the molded cup while still staying breathable. And while she was developing that, she was also spending a lot of time caring for sick relatives. And boom, she realized the shape of the cup she had designed would make a tighter and more comfortable seal than the flimsy masks she saw doctors wearing. Unfortunately, it turned out that that particular material uh, did not actually filter out microbes. So when 3M did put out the resulting mask in the early 70s, it was for construction dust um, and volcanic ash but it was not actually used in a medical setting the way uh, Sarah had imagined it. But of course, today with improved filters and and respirators, those 3M masks are widely used uh, to prevent the spread of disease. So as we have said on popsci.com, valved masks only filter the air you breathe in, not the air you breathe out. So we do not recommend them for going about your daily business to prevent the spread of COVID-19. However, they are hugely important for healthcare uh, professionals. And, you know, that bra cup inspired design is essentially the same. And it was because Sarah Little was this person who could look at gift wrap material and say, what the heck else can I make with this? And I found (laughs) as recently as 2009, this very serious industry magazine, I'm not going to call it out by name, but it was talking about the like pervasive myth of the N95 mask coming from a bra cup design. And it said that evidence showed that the ideas had been developed simultaneously at best 
which is sort of true. But the thing that drove me crazy is that Sarah Little was not mentioned once. It was just this whole like, wherever could this thing about N95 masks and bras have come from? The information was all out there. Sarah Little was still doing her thing. But I think it's only recently as people have started to get more interested in the early contributions uh, of women and people of color in science and engineering that people have really realized that uh, Sarah Little Turnbull is a fantastic historical character. Now, I just need to make sure that our listeners understand how incredibly prolific Sarah's career was. So here are just some examples of her work. She's responsible for the first successful boxed chocolate cake sold in England because... What? Because she was tasked with figuring out why American boxed cake products were not selling. They were totally flopping. And she considered herself kind of like a designer informed by cultural anthropology. So she did tons of traveling to be like, how are people using the product? How are people using objects that could inspire products and things like that? And so she took her like typical trip to England and was really like, she could not figure out why people didn't want to use this cake mix. And then she went for high tea and what they served her as cake was totally different from American cake. And just nobody had bothered to learn the difference between cake in England and America, which, as we know from watching The Great British Bake Off, is significant. Um, (laughs) So they actually then ended up being able to sell multiple products because they were able to make one box product that was even more moist than an American cake and sell it as a pudding. Um, And then they were able to make a a denser cake that, you know, you didn't need to eat with a fork to sell as cake. So for Corning, uh, which was another company she did a lot of work with, she developed those freezer to oven to countertop Corningware dishes. Mm -hmm. um, And she did it by using materials developed for ballistic missiles. So another very typical Sarah uh, move to be like, well, there are things that get really hot. <laughs> Surely we could put some of that into a baking dish. So, you know, those very ubiquitous lid tops on like corningware or on Dutch ovens where it's just kind of like a, a raised round handle that is designed to just very easily just like grip it and lift it in one motion. So she, oh, yes. she developed that for corningware by watching how tigers grasped their prey. (laughs) Oh, my God. What Um, inspiration. Yeah, she also had a hand in developing the first glass cooktops for them. And then the most amazing thing she has done for the world, bugles. Oh, my God. The snack. The best snack. Wow. Bugles. Her expertise was very wide ranging because I feel like today there's like materials people who would work on like, you know, the stickiness of post-it notes. And then there's other people who invent new snack foods to make everyone become addicted to. So that's wild that she did all of that. <laughs> yeah. And and those were just the products she's um, she's openly associated with. I'm really glad you said that, Sarah, because one thing that Sarah Little said a lot when she was alive was that, like, she was really just the idea guy and that that was nothing without brilliant execution. So she was often very quiet, happily so, about, like, which products had come from her. But she spent 
decades as a long-term consultant for companies that included Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, General Mills, Macy's, Neiman Marcus, Marks & Spencer, American Can, DuPont, Ford, Nissan, Pfizer, Revlon, Elizabeth Arden, Lever Brothers, Motorola, NASA, and Volvo. So (laughs) one can only imagine... (laughs) First of all, American Can is a great name. So straightforward. I love that. Also, I love that Bugles, like uh, on the long list of things she did, I love that Bugles was one of the things that she was like, that, I want credit for that thing. Yeah. You know what? Because like, they're great. You get to put them on your hands and have little witchy fingers and they taste delicious. Um, Who doesn't love a Bugle? Yeah. I I would insist upon getting credit for the Bugle as well if I were her. And she had a really cool life. She described herself as like a penthouse living, diamond and fur wearing Manhattan power woman up until she got married, which she did. Oh, yeah. She did it 48, um, which like I love that for her. Yeah. She did not want it until she wanted it. And then she met Jim Turnbull and she wanted it. And they moved out to Washington State. And in the 80s, she got into academia and she ran a lab at Stanford. She retired at 88, died at 97 in 2015. And um, as I said... I love her. So <laughs> Wow. I love her too. This is for sure my new crush. A hundred percent. What I really want now is like a like a sort of Mad Men style show, but just about her instead of a Don Draper character. I had exactly that thought where I was like, Peggy is almost an homage to this person, but on like the ad side and also like as cool as Peggy is on that show. Not nearly as cool as Sarah Little was in real life. Yeah, I feel like I what I want is like Sarah Little giving presentations to like rooms full of dudes and just like blowing their minds. Bugles, corning ware, baking dishes. Amazing. I'm picturing that scene about with the carousel thing, but like, oh, or the toasted. Tell them it's toasted. But Sarah Little. Oh, this is so good. Wow. I need to pitch this idea. Yeah. All right. Well, we've figured out our life plan for the next 10 years, so we'll we'll get storyboarding. But what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Because I have to go with car spiders, I just have to say. I also second car spiders. <laughs> wow. I am honored. Both of both of yours were deeply weird, but also deeply upsetting in their own ways. Thank you, Sarah. And Which Kendra- I think is really the Popsi brand. <laughs> That's true. And Kendra, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that. 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.